Well, after nine months of working our way through the book of Romans, we've come to its end. This is the final chapter of Romans. Today is the final message in the series. And everybody goes, ah, didn't think we'd ever get there. Well, we have got there. Sometimes when I've read the book of Romans, I get to chapter 16 and I find myself just skipping through the first part of it because it's all about, I'll give my greetings to so-and-so and say good day to so-and-so and say good day to what's his name. And, and to me, it seems like it's almost like this never-ending, oh, I hope I haven't forgot anyone, and just trying to name everybody that he can remember that he knows that he needs to say good day to. And it's very personal between Paul and the people who he's talking to. Um, and then he goes on, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. By the way, you know the difference between a holy kiss and an unholy kiss? About 20 seconds. I'm, I'm waiting for laughter. <laughs> it didn't come. <laughs> Somebody chuckled. Um, but as Paul makes all of these greetings, he also describes what it is about these people that he finds special. First of all, he commends Phoebe to the Roman church. And we don't even know who this Phoebe character is. We, this is the only place where she gets a mention in the whole Bible. But the fact that she is the only person that, that Paul is sending with his commendation, it, it, it makes it look like it's highly likely that Phoebe is the one who's been designated to be the messenger. Right? So it wasn't a matter of putting a stamp on a letter and posting it at the local post box. He'd written, Paul had written this letter... And now he had to get it from where he was all the way to Rome. And it looks like it's most likely Phoebe who's going to be the one who carries this letter to Rome. And Paul is asking them to welcome her and to help her out with whatever she needs. Why? Well, firstly, because she's a sister in Christ. And he says to welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. This is not some unknown, undeserving visitor who's going to be turning up. This is one of God's saints. And I believe that we have so much to learn about being hospitable to the saints of God. By the way, do we have any saints of God here? Six of you? You realise that a saint is a Christian, don't you? Right? You're not somebody, you don't have to be canonised by the Pope in Rome to be classified as a saint. A saint is someone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and is saved from their sins. So let's give this another go. Is there any saints here? Excellent. That's much better. Much better. Um, so I believe, though, we have a lot to learn about being hospitable to the saints of God. Would I welcome a stranger into my home simply because another Christian has told me, hey, this is a brother or sister in Christ, you should look after him. Would we? Would we welcome them into our homes? I actually hope that we do um, because these are the holy ones of God. But there's also another reason for them to make Phoebe welcome and it's because she has done exactly the same thing for so many other people. We're told here that Phoebe has been a benefactor or a patron. She has supplied the needs of so many other Christians, including Paul himself. She'd looked after Paul when he needed hospitality. 
You know, sometimes we might start getting a bit of the impression that, you know, some Christians are the givers and the others are the takers. Some Christians are really good at giving hospitality and they're the ones who give it and others receive it. But I think we need to take a bit of a leaf out of Phoebe's book. When Phoebe was able to be hospitable, that's exactly what she did. She was hospitable to, to others. She gave hospitality. But when she left her home to go on a mission to the Roman church, the tables had turned. Now, she might have still been quite within her means of being able to, oh, I'll go and stay at the, lo- at the closest inn and pay my own way, thanks very much. But no, at this point, it was right for her to go and receive from others. It was right for her to receive the hospitality from the Romans. And, and sometimes those of us who can be the greatest of hosts and we love to have people over for a meal and we love to have guests come and stay with us, sometimes we're the worst at receiving hospitality. We sort of think, oh no, no, I, I wouldn't want to put that person out. Now, so, somebody comes to mind, some, some, I hope Robin doesn't mind, but her grandmother, Robin's grandma, is one of the most hospitable people. She's just always giving and giving and giving. But, oh no, I couldn't receive anything from you. Oh no, I'd be, if I come to stay with you, I'd be putting you out. You see, it's, it's really important for us not just to be givers, but to also give other people the opportunity to be hospitable to us. So it's best for us not to be too proud and actually receive hospitality from others. Likewise, if you're somebody who receives hospitality, it's really good to also, when you are able, to be able to offer hospitality. It doesn't matter if the house is a mess. It doesn't matter if there's a bit of dust lying around. It doesn't matter if all you can afford to feed your guests is a bit of boiled rice. That's okay. We need to be hospitable whenever we can. Okay, so he commends Phoebe because she's a sister in Christ and because she gives hospitality, and now it's her turn to receive it. And then Paul turns to giving his greetings to a whole bunch of other people. Now, I want you to notice what it is about these people that makes them special. Some of them were Paul's kinsmen. That means they're his rallies, right? And you'd expect him to be saying good day to anybody who he's related to, wouldn't you? But then he lists the attributes of some of the people. And there were two things that really stood out to me. Some of them got special mention because they had risked their lives or they had been imprisoned for the gospel. But the word that comes up the most is work. Priscilla and Aquila were fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Mary has worked hard for the Roman church. Urbanus is a fellow worker in Christ. Tryphena and Tryphosa are workers in the Lord. Persis has worked hard in the Lord. You're starting to get a little bit of a theme happening here? Yeah? Faithful discipleship involves work. What were they working hard at? Well, for the gospel, of course. They're working hard at getting the gospel out to a world who sorely needs to hear it. I wonder, do we realise how privileged we are to be able to work hard for the Lord? 
One day I was having a bit of a conversation with somebody and, and they told me how they wished that they lived somewhere where a bit bigger place, you know, and they named Toowoomba. They said, place about the size of Toowoomba because I'd really like to be part of a really big church. And I thought I'd explore this a bit with them and I asked them what appealed to them about being able to live in a big place like Toowoomba so you could go to a really big church. And they told me how they just wished that they could just go to church and not have to do anything. And I felt really sad. See, we live very much in a consumer culture. If we want something, we just pay for it and we, and we buy it. Or if we want something done, we pay and it gets done for us. And for many people today, we have become consumers through and through. And we've even become consumers of church. Where the church will provide everything that I need. And if it doesn't, well, that's okay because there's another church down the road that will provide exactly what I need. Now, I don't believe the Lord wants us to be consumers of church where we just turn up and have church done to us. It is an honour and it is a privilege to work hard for the Lord. Now, I'm sure we've all been to a few funerals of some good, strong, faithful Christians where people have gotten up and, and shared how these people have been such hard workers for the Lord. We've been to funerals like that. I remember my grandfather's funeral. Just everybody got up, one after another. And of course, Gordon Phelps's funeral just recently. So many people talked about how he had worked hard for the Lord. And I was thinking about this in relation to this, and I, I thought, gee... I, I, it'd be really good if at my funeral there were those who said he worked hard for the Lord. But more than that, when we meet the Lord and see him face to face, what an honour it would be for the Lord to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. My prayer is that the Lord would say that to every one of us. You know, we shouldn't be aspiring for the Lord just to say that to just a few of the upfront people at the church. As a church, my hope is that the Lord would say this to every one of us. Well done, good and faithful servant. Jenny, that kid story today, that was truly excellent. I, that just said everything we needed to hear today. God has given us gifts He's given you a gift of being able to communicate with children the message of the gospel. And he's given us gifts, and so often we just leave those gifts wrapped up and we don't use them. We need to be using them, working hard for the Lord. When Jesus said, Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, that doesn't mean that he doesn't want us to work. What it means is he wants to take all of our burdens away. He wants to take away all of our cares and all of our worries and, and all of our strivings for worldly satisfaction and all of our strivings for human accomplishment. He wants to take all of that away and set us free from all of that and free of all of this. And in the freedom and in the power of God, we are able to work hard for the Lord. In Christ, at the same time, we rest and we work. Let's move on. In many of Paul's letters, it seems the purpose of the letter 
is very clearly to warn churches about false teachers. And his warnings against heresies and false teachers very often seem to take front and centre stage. Not so with this letter. Uh, Romans is quite different to most of his other letters. It is only here, right at the very end in his closing remarks, where Paul sounds a warning to watch out for false teachers. And so it seems that the Roman church don't really have a problem in this regard at the moment. But he is also very aware uh, that their position can change quite quickly. Right? So he recognises their obedience now and he's, he names it. He says, you're very obedient. But he knows this can change very quickly. How does he know? Because he's seen it happen so many times in so many other churches. Even in a good, obedient church, that church is in constant danger of false teachers and their lies wheedling their way into that church. And false teachers and their lies can very quickly destroy the work that God is doing. And it's actually in good, spirit-filled churches where God is really doing stuff, it's in those churches that I've seen Satan attack more than others. Why? Well, if it's a tired, old, ineffective church that's not doing anything, well, he doesn't care so much. But when a church is alive for God, that becomes a target. And false teachers and their lies can very quickly destroy the work that God is doing. And so Paul tells them to watch out for them. And he tells them to avoid them. That means don't, don't even associate with them. So, if we are to watch out for these false teachers, what do we need to be looking for? Well, in some of his letters, he names particular teachings that they might be introducing and, and warns them to, to stay away from those. But he doesn't mention that this time. This time, he lists the traits of the person to watch out for. These people are divisive. They are self-serving. They have a way with words. They will flatter you. They'll tell you exactly what you want to hear. They'll, they'll make you feel really good about yourself. And in doing so, they'll actually start to remove whatever is offending you about the gospel. And so they teach what is contrary to the gospel. And they are persuasive. And with their smooth talking and their flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Now, is anybody naive here? None of us like to... Oh, we've actually got a couple of people put their hands up. I was expecting nothing. None of us like to think that we're naive, do we? Of course not. But the fact of the matter is, some of us are. Paul uses a bit of a play on words here. What does he mean by naive? In the Greek, kakon means evil. But if you put an alpha in front of kakon, it turns it into akakon, and that means not evil or innocent. So, for example, in the English language, it's exactly the same. Uh, so take for the word, the word political. So we have the word political, but you put the letter A in front of it, turns it into apolitical, which means not political. Right? So it's exactly the same prefix that, that changes its meaning completely. And the word that our Bibles translate as naive 
is actually the word akakon, which means not evil or innocent. Now, how does that get translated, therefore, into naive? It is because they are so totally unaware of evil. They are so innocent of evil. They are totally unaware of it, and therefore, they're in danger of falling into it. Okay, you see the logic? And Paul is telling them, watch out. Don't be naive. Watch out for the smooth talkers. Watch out for the flatterers. Watch out for those who are going to introduce these new teachings with their persuasive words that cause people to trip them up and fall. Have you ever noticed that some people will instantly recognise a lie for what it is, but others just seem to fall for it? Have you noticed that? Yeah? Somebody comes along and and they have a way with words and they sound very reasonable and all very nice and charming and they introduce a teaching that might sound reasonable and it sounds appealing, but it's just not true. Most of what they say might be true, but then they bring this other one in which, which isn't true. And the naive fall for it, but others will go, that's a lie. And they recognize that straight away. How does that happen? How is somebody able to recognise that? Well, there's two ways. Some people are given a spiritual gift of discernment. And these people supernaturally know that a certain person is a false teacher or that what they are teaching is a lie of Satan. They just know it. And it's just revealed to them by God. But the second way to recognise a lie to be well acquainted with the truth. And this, my friends, is why it is so important for every Christian to be studying their Bibles. If we know the truth, we will recognise a lie for what it is. If we intimately know the truth of the gospel, we're not going to be confused by those Lies that are trying to take us away from that. And when you hear your preacher, um, if something he says isn't quite right, check it out in, in the Word. I want you to be checking up on me. If in this message today you, you think, oh, that's a bit strange what he said, that I've never heard that before, and you start thinking, well, actually, I'm not sure that that's biblical. Well, First of all, I'd ask that you don't stop me mid-sentence and take me to task here and, here and now. Uh, that would be a little disruptive. But when you go home, check it out in your Bible. See if, it's, see if what I said is true. And if you find that you still disagree with what I said, please come and talk to me about it. Because I'm not infallible. I make mistakes. I can be wrong. And if I'm wrong, I need to be corrected. I believe the warning for us to watch out for flatterers and false teachers is very important for us today. Today, generally, we get taught to always see the good in people. Uh, But the problem is, even in a good, obedient church, 
there is a constant danger of false teachers and their lies coming in to disrupt that church. And we generally get taught to always see the good in people, to, to celebrate the good things that they do and to turn a blind eye to their faults. Can anyone tell me where that is in the Bible? Don't think for too long because it's not there. Um, that's more of a humanistic way of looking at things. In the church, we're actually taught to do the opposite. We are taught to watch out for false teachers and have nothing to do with them. I've seen what happens in a church where false teaching is allowed to continue. I've seen what happens when the truth is stifled and the gospel is changed from from something which is supposed to be transforming us and bringing us alive in God. But it's changed to something which just affirms how we currently are. What happens? Well, that church will become divided. Um, and those who have deceived, been deceived will stumble and fall. Um, those who take the biblical thing seriously and, and set themselves apart from that will find themselves cut off. And of course, along with all of this comes a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. I used to be part of a denomination who took on the mantra, unity in diversity, they would say. Meaning, of course, you know, we can believe what we like. And we all have different beliefs, but we can believe what we like, but we're still united. Rubbish. False teaching does not unite. It divides. Where the Bible talks about unity and diversity, it's certainly not talking about a, a diversity of belief. It's talking about a diversity of gift, which is what we spoke about earlier. We all have different gifts. I have different gifts to what you have, and you have different gifts to what the person sitting beside you has. But if the whole church are using our gifts, the church has unity. It's not when you believe one thing and I believe another and somebody else believes another. That's not the diversity that God is looking for. False teaching does not unite, it divides. So be on the lookout for it. Well, that brings us to the end of Romans. Um, all we have left is the doxology. And I could preach a whole sermon on the doxology, but I'm not going to. Um, and I just saw a few smiles happen then. I will read it. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, do you realise all of that, all of those words fits into two sentences and the last sentence was one word. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, some ministers will only ever go for a half strength in their messages. They'll only ever preach from the Gospels. 
because they believe, all right, this is where the words of Jesus are, this is what's important, that's all I'll preach from. And I know a number of ministers that will only ever preach from Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is found in all of the scriptures. Did you notice there that that Paul actually said, my gospel, now according him to is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Now gospel means good news, right? So this is my good news that I'm telling you. I'm telling you about Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is, is found in the whole of the scripture. It begins in the Old Testament and it's expanded in the New Testament. We hear it in the preaching of Jesus. We read it in the letters of the New Testament. But long before then, it was foretold by the prophets. We sing about it in the Psalms. We digest it in the wisdom of the Proverbs. The Word of God, the whole Word of God has power. It is power to strengthen us and according to the good news in Jesus Christ. Its purpose to bring about the obedience of faith. We've just spent nine months. That's long enough to gestate a baby, isn't it? We've just spent nine months studying the book of Romans. And here in the closing sentence, what is he telling us is the purpose What is the purpose for him writing it? What is the purpose for us to read it? To bring about the obedience of faith. We don't just read the Bible so we know more stuff. We don't just study it so we can fill in our day. We study it it because the Scriptures are life-transforming. When we allow the Lord Jesus Christ to come alive to us through those words, when we allow the Holy Spirit to move us to this place of obedience, of faith. My prayer is that as we've waded through Romans, and some of it's been pretty deep, My prayer is that the Lord has been doing his work in us, leading us to a new obedience in faith to him. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise you for for revealing to us in this very book that we've just read and studied the gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I know how shallow my faith would be if I didn't have the book of Romans to study because it is just explained so fully. Lord, we praise you that Jesus died for our sins. We praise you that he rose again, conquering death and bringing life. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of faith. And we thank you for the purpose of your holy scriptures to bring about the obedience of faith.
Lord, when it comes to faith, we have a little, but we desire for you to increase it greatly. Lord, we thank you for the many ways that you have strengthened us as we have read this letter to the Romans. And now, Lord, may, us, may it lead us to obedience. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.